You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. I spoke of lines on the paper for children. Uh, I think implicit in all breaking away from society is that one had to be in it before breaking away. And no one grows up, no one grows up in this world a sh- just a sheer nature creature. Society, the local society, begins building into one from the start. And I, uh, I don't think it's possible uh, to break from it. What drives one insane is the failure to achieve a final relationship. There are only two things to do. One is to go away and stay away entirely and drop the society altogether. This is the pattern of the hermit, a real hermit. There's no point in going away and making believe you're away and wondering what the world's thinking. But if you're going to have the world in your mind, uh, come back and relate. Uh, This business of quitting the world, Ramakrishna, let me mention him again. He said there are three ways of renouncing the world. There is gradual renunciation, there is sudden renunciation, and there is monkey renunciation. Gradual renunciation, the person knows that he has performed his duties, he is moving into a stage of life where new problems are emerging, namely the interior problems. He has given his due to society and he is now ready to give his due to himself. So he moves out with proper preparations, makes arrangements for his family's life and so forth, and leaves. Sudden renunciation is like this. A man is arguing with his wife in the morning and he goes out of the hut with the towel on his shoulder to wash. And he says to his wife, now you shut up or I'll go into the forest, become a yogi, and you'll never see me again. Wait a second. And he says, she says, oh, come on now. You'd never do a thing like that. You've, uh, you've said things like this before. You wouldn't do that. He says, I won't. Watch. And he walks away with the towel on his shoulder. Monkey renunciation, and this is the one I'm leading up to, is when someone renounces the world, goes away, and the family pretty soon gets a postcard saying, I found a nice instructor, you know, I've learned to hold my arms up in the air, and all this kind of thing. Or meditating in a Park Avenue penthouse, wondering about the stock market. This is no good. Um, We have this challenge of authority in the Orient as well as in the Occident, but there is a, a difference. Um, when the, the Buddha found his doctrine and pronounced it, he was not thought to have originated a doctrine. He claimed to have renewed an earlier doctrine. And so also in the, in the Chinese system with the, um, the Taoist and other ways of renouncing and leaving the world, these are ways that have already been marked out. But there's a very interesting line in one of the Grail romances where the knights go forth from Arthur's court in quest of the grail. They thought that if they were to go forth in a group, this would be disgraceful. And so they went each in his own direction and each entered the forest where it was thickest and there was no path. Since your life is unique, since you are unique, if you follow anyone else's path, you're not following your path. Uh, this is not the Oriental way. Now, I don't know whether I've answered this gentleman's question. Oh, I, I'm awfully sorry, sir. I, I didn't think you were speaking in Mozartone. Well, now, I, I'm not one who knows how to comment on situations that I haven't uh, 
any contact with. All I know about the Mao Zedong thing is that uh, we have reports of these young people ranging, ranging, ranging. I know this from what I have read of Mao Zedong, that he rejects the Confucian system and everything having to do with Confucius because Confucius made distinctions. Confucian names the five relationships of father to son, husband to wife, friend to friend, uh, younger brother to older brother, and uh, minister to, uh, to a monarch. And all of this is to be wiped out. Now, these young men are following an authority, it seems to me, the authority of Mao Zedong. Whenever you see pictures of them, they're waving the little red book with all the sayings of Mao Zedong. It just seems to me to be what I said anyone was who hadn't found himself but was simply doing what some social authority told him to do. These people are the instruments of Mao Zedong. They're not individuals at all. And as far as what I'm talking about, that movement in China has no connection whatsoever. It belongs to uh, Nafta on the Magic Mountain, the man of authority, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the, uh, what I'm saying is very much related to Jung. Uh, it seems to me that in the matter of interpreting mythology, in the psychological context, Jung is the best I've found. Uh, now, in Angiodromia is exactly what I'm talking about. That is to say, one has been going on a certain line, and that line has worn itself out, as it did for Hans Kastorp before he went to the Magic Mountain. And then one is pulled away from it. In Goethe's Faust, you have this. Faust opens with that wonderful speech, the Goethe's Faust, where he says, I've mastered all the arts, all the sciences, and my life is dried up. And he's thinking of committing suicide. When he hears the church bells ring at Easter time, now, this isn't a religious experience. It reminds him of his youth. It reminds him of the simplicity and naivete of life. And he is pulled back to a new life through that. Uh, this is exactly correct, what you suggest there, as far as my judgment goes. Well, the uh, earliest beginnings I know of this are to be found among primitive people, among the shamans. And uh, when Rasmussen went across North America from uh, Labrador right across to Alaska, this was a very, um, a very sympathetic man, a very intelligent man, and he had a number of conversations with, with shamans. These are uh, the uh, power men, the uh, spiritual masters among the very simple people. And every one of them said, in order to find the spirit, one must leave and be alone and find it in oneself, and then one hears it talk. And these men, it's really noble and beautiful what they have to say. It sounds very much like what the great mystics have to say. I think it is a basic psychological need, and it doesn't start in one place and then get communicated to other people. There are moments in history when society moves into such a sterile state that there are great urges, and many people go into the, into the forest or into the desert. But in general, everyone who feels a least little bit of uh, pull within himself away uh, knows about this. He knows I've got to turn inward and find my own way. But you know the terrible thing is, he probably goes to some guide, someone who will tell him what to do. Um, well, now this is a very uh, wonderful technical question. I'm going to try to answer it in terms of the Grail situation. Uh, actually, in those romances, the, the round table represented the social sphere. 
There was no sense of rejection of it. There was a sense of going away from it. Perhaps you wouldn't come back, as happened in some of the romances where they actually went away. But in, uh, in the more, what could I call, balanced ones, the finding of the grail really symbolizes the finding of your own center. And there is actually intercourse between the grail circle and the uh, Arthurian round table circle. They are related. They're not utterly divorced from each other. This is in the Wolfram example. But in the uh, Galahad quest, the knight leaves and goes to heaven and the world is left to rot. This isn't the advertisement I'm making tonight. <laughs> well, I don't like to talk about that experience. The, um, in the first place, the priests who walked across the fire were not in trance. Nobody was in trance at all. It was all a perfectly sane group of people who walked across the fire. And uh, furthermore, they were, it was not a bed of coals exactly. There were blazing logs, blazing flames, over which there were logs with the flames coming up through. And um, when I walked across, I made a point of stepping on the flames to see if they would, be, would hurt me. And, um, and they didn't. Furthermore, just to add to this, I had sprained my ankle uh, two months before, and the, the, I had a kind of baseball on my ankle of a swelling, and when I got through walking on the fire, the ankle was down. Now, I don't know how to explain it, and I don't want to try. I've been uh, asked to explain it. How can I? I don't know how they did it. The, um, these priests, by the way, the Yamabushi priests in Japan, are famous for their skill with fire. And uh, I'm perfectly willing to believe that there was some trick there. I'm perfectly willing to believe that there was no trick. I don't know. This was no myth. This was as actual as I standing here. Oh, I, I think uh, communism is a religion. I do. I think it's a, a completely secularized version of the biblical religion. Uh, with, as I say, the day of the revolution coming, an apocalyptic doctrine, with the notion of good guys and bad guys, with the notion of a book and an authority, and the notion of a clergy that will tell you what the book really says, a perfect willingness to burn anybody who differs, and a complete imperviousness to proof, to fact, to anything that goes against their doctrine. Seems to me to have every trait of a Levantine religion. I was making the distinction between outside authority, whether it's rational or irrational, and one's own following of one's own vision, one's own voice, one's own integrity. I am putting the individual against society, and I don't care whether it's a Nazi society or a communist society or a democratic society or any society. The problem exists of the individual finding himself. Some people will find themselves through irrational paths, others through rational paths. This is why I mentioned the amour, the love motif, and the science motif. The main thing is to find and have the courage of your own integrity. That's what I'm talking about. And uh, all this business about whether it's uh, rational or irrational, Nazi or communist, is, is, is uh, not what I was saying. Now, am I understanding uh, this correctly? You're asking whether the present condition of India uh, is, what, uh, is a result of their simply following authority or something like this? 
Yes, I would say so. Uh, lest anyone think that when I speak of India, I'm, a, I'm saying, uh, let's go and become Hindus. Let me tell you that when I was in India, my first great shock, uh, I, I was invited to dinner with uh, some very fine young Brahmins, uh, non-Indo-European language, Malayalam. And uh, after dinner, the father of these boys was not having dinner with us. We had this, it's always very difficult to eat in India with your hands. You get liquids up by some kind of osmosis. It's not easy. And after this event, we were invited down to see the father. Now I thought the father was a uh, great, big, beautiful, chesty Brahmin with the Brahminical thread and so forth. He was sitting behind a low desk with a lot of big books on it. And I thought, well, Veda, Mahabharata, Bhagavad Gita, that must be what these books are. So we sat down and he spoke to his son and his son translated. I was there with two other gentlemen. And his question was, what do you think of Indian philosophy? Well, each of us said the finest things he could about Indian philosophy, just everything we could. And the boy translated this to his father. The father then spoke to the boys. And the boy then says, my father asks, are you crazy? Uh, do you not have eyes? Do you not see the condition of this country? Don't you know that there's a connection between philosophy and life? So I, I'm, I'm with the father there. He converted me. <laughs> this is way out of my field, but uh, from what I've heard, uh, I think that certain people need a kind of sock in the jaw. And uh, this is one way to break up the person's bind, where he, he holds himself, holds himself, holds himself to the system of concepts and, and patterns and so forth. But the thing that I'm finding most disturbing, being a, um, a teacher in a, in a, in a, with young people, is um, young people with all these potentialities for rich conscious experience start this. Now, they don't need it yet. Uh, I think that uh, it, it, some of them are jumping the gun and, and maybe a little sorry, but this is just a completely amateurish, dilettante judgment. I've made no study of the matter. I have very uh, intelligent friends who are very strong for this. They feel it is a very valuable thing. Uh, what I've witnessed on uh, campuses, however, makes me feel that this has to be done under some kind of uh, advice and supervision of somebody who knows where it's going. I admire uh, Martin Buber as a writer, and uh, I've heard him speak in very close circumstances. He's an eloquent, wonderful speaker. But I can't say that I, I, I understand what he's saying. Uh, he seems to me to be saying two things that are quite contradictory, uh, and uh, I'd rather not try to comment. I, I find it very difficult to talk about God. Um, how, how one can relate the idea of a personal author of uh, the world to the world that we know, the galaxies and all that. Uh, I'm much more in favor of thinking of these things in human terms, and I'd simply ask, how can men be so brutal to each other and stupid and uh, so on? But um, I don't know. There are people who've lived lives 
than are gracious and lovely. And I've been very fortunate myself in encountering very little of the brutality of life. It's all in the world of uh, people I know, and they've suffered terribly. This seems to me to be a human problem and not a theological one. You can't talk about God as being all-powerful and so forth, and then in the next breath look at the world as a mistake he made. I, th I think the personification of the problem of the world is short-circuiting it and bringing up a lot of problems that we can't Well, that's why it's difficult. It's, it's, it's not easy. Uh, everyone has only, you know, each one has one life and he's got the whole darn thing. Uh, he can give all his attention to it. And all these nice problems of when it's time to be alone and when it's time to be with someone and even the wonderful art of choosing whom you're going to be with, uh, all this is a personal matter and it requires attention. Everyone who has ever talked about these things has said it is difficult. There's that Indian statement, the narrow edge of a razor is this, a very difficult path. You can go off either side and tip over. It's an adventure. All adventures are dangerous. It wouldn't be an adventure if it weren't dangerous. If one doesn't want adventure, then stay home. And uh, there is happiness, and there is prestige, and there is infinite boredom. I'm trying to think of the name of the man who wrote the book called In Quest of Meaning, uh, Frankel. Now here's a man who was in a um, Nazi uh, concentration camp. I think that, that, to me, would represent the extreme pressure of society. And this man, it's a noble book. It's a book to be read. He found that center in himself where he could live as a man in that situation. Now, it just seems to me, if a man like that, uh, he was not a powerful man, he was a man, a simple a doctor and a regular sort of uh, middle-class bourgeois person, and uh, no hero life or anything of the kind, he had stuff in him, and he faced this, and he never felt ashamed of anything he did. He behaved nobly all through. Other people were breaking up around him. Now some people can take it, some can't. This is the, this I would call the breaking point. When, when a man breaks, he's broken. That's all. You can't bring judgment against him. Too much weight. If a, if a weight falls on you and you're smashed, you're smashed. Society can do that. It will. It can. In quiet ways, in rough ways, secret ways. Um, but one just has to have that. And that book to me stands as a kind of pillar there. Uh, it's a stoic attitude. Now, if he could do it under those circumstances, I think any, any of us can do it right here in this city. <laughs>